The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. I want to welcome everyone in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We've been in a sermon series called You Are What You Love. And the whole premise of this sermon series is that we're not primarily what we think first, although our culture says, hey, you are what you think, perhaps. And as Christians, we're not even primarily what we believe, although thinking and believing is really, really important. We've been contending, and I think maybe in Scripture contends, that what you really are is what you love. That you're primarily not driven by what you think or what you believe, but your everyday decisions and actions are driven by what you love. And we've also talked about that you love, that you practice towards what you love. I often tell my students, I say, if you really want to know what you think, if you really want to know who you think Jesus is or who you believe Jesus to be, then look at your life. Look at your practices. They'll tell you more about who you believe he is than what you say. And so, if you practice towards what you love, it may mean that you are what you practice. And Christian worship are practices that aim our loves, that aim our desires towards their proper end. Like all that we do in worship are practices that are not intended for us to aim practices towards ourselves, but they're practices that aim our loves, that intend to aim our loves to its proper end, which is God. And last week we practiced a cherished Christian practice of worship. When Emily Bokesh was baptized into Jesus Christ after service. She's shaking her head saying, no, I'm sorry. Because I've grown up in a tradition which is valued baptism. It is a practice of salvation. It's a practice of hope. It's a practice of renewal. It's a practice of transformation. And after for those of you that shared, I don't know if you felt like me, maybe I'm the only one, but I, we finished the baptism, we were gathered around, hugging and taking pictures, and I was thinking to myself, let's do it again, let's do it again. Maybe I want to say to this congregation, let's keep doing it, let's do it again. Because we live baptized lives. Our life is marked by that water. And many of you have come up to me after I challenged you guys a few weeks ago in a sermon about the welcome and hospitality, that part of a Christian practice of worship is to welcome one another. And I said, hey, here's your homework. Be hospitable and welcome someone from this congregation you don't know well. Be hospitable and welcome someone from the community that you don't know well. And several of you have come up to me and have shared you inviting people from your neighborhood into your homes and the ways you've seen God working just by opening yourselves up and practicing hospitality. 
and the ways God has shown up in your lives through that. So you are what you love. You practice towards what you love. You are what you practice. And so we want to be a people that practices our faith through worship. We practice hospitality. We practice confession. We practice baptism. We practice singing a new song. And today we want to talk about the practice of attending to the Word of God. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through 5. We'll read Genesis 1, 1 through 5. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, for your word, we give you thanks. Give us ears to hear, give us hearts to follow, give us bodies to practice your word. Ancient words ever true, changing us. God, we come with open hearts today that your ancient word may impart. God, I pray for the gift of preaching that I may proclaim your word faithfully, that all may hear. It's in the name of Jesus, your word to us, we pray. Amen. In the beginning, when God created the world, there was just water. Now, sometimes we usually think God creates out of nothing, and that's part of the Christian tradition, but in Genesis 1... It doesn't say creates out of nothing. He says there's water. The Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. And that's significant because in ancient Near Eastern culture, water is often symbolic of danger, of risk. Actually, within ancient Near Eastern cultures, you have beasts that inhabit the water. God's live in the water. Water is a place of chaos. So for the Babylonians, uh, Tiamut is the God who is made of water and produces water. And then you even have in Scripture, you have the Canaanite, God of chaos, which you may have heard of in the Scripture. Leviathan, we've questioned what is this beast, Leviathan? The Canaanite God of chaos. And so water is representative of chaos in this story. Now, think of it this way. In the beginning, God creates the world, and when he creates the world, there's only water. 
There's darkness and water. By the time you get to the story of Noah, God's so fed up with creation that what does he do? He destroys it with water. In other words, one of the significant things about the story of Noah is that what God does in the story of the flood is that he takes it back to the beginning. He starts all over. And he starts over with Noah and his family. And if you've ever been out in the open ocean, some of you are seafaring people maybe, but for me, there's nothing more frightening than the chaos of the open ocean. God is hovering in the beginning over the chaos. And it talks about it this way. It says it was formless and empty. That's the description of what this pre-created world is like. In other words, it has no discernible form. There's no shape to it. There's no order to it. You can't discern anything. And because it is formless... There's nothing that fills it up. There's no order to it. There's no content to it. There's just nothing. It's empty. There's no form or order. There's no meaning. And so it says that it's just dark. This is a picture of chaos. Which is symbolic perhaps for our own lives. When your life is in chaos, there's no order to it, and you question what's the meaning of all this, and you feel darkness, this is a picture of chaos. And then God does something very interesting. He says, the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. But it doesn't give this picture of God coming down and ordering things. It just gives this picture of God speaking a word. God doesn't even have to show up in this story. He just gives his word. Creation happens. In fact, the word is this. Light! And out of the darkness comes light. And what's interesting is that when you think about the chaos, that there's no form and that the world is empty, there's no good order, there's empty, it's meaningless. It's all just meaningless. Then in the first three days, out of the six that he creates and on the seventh he rests, in the first three days is that he forms the earth. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but he takes light and he separates it from darkness. He creates the light and he orders it. He says the darkness is here and the light is here. Then he takes the water and he makes the expanse and he says the sky is here and the earth is here. And then he separates the waters and he says the water is here and the land is here. And you begin to see that by his very word he begins to form what we see today. And then in days four, five, and six, after he's formed the earth, he then begins to fill it up. So you have light and darkness, you have sky and earth, 
And then he commands the stars to come out. Then he commands the moon and the sun, and he puts the sun, the moon, and the stars in the sky. He fills the sky. And those lights are to govern the day and the night. And then he puts in the sea all kinds of creatures. After he's formed the sea, then he fills it with all kinds of creatures by his word. Then he commands that the land which he separated from the waters, it brings about vegetation. And then he starts filling it with livestock and animals. And it says all kinds of creatures that roam on the ground. And then up in the air, he puts birds up in the air. So he's, put, he's created the sky, he's formed the sky. And then by his word, he brings about and he fills the sky full of creatures. He takes chaos And by his word, he orders life out of chaos. Now, oftentimes, we were tempted to think of this as just history. But this text doesn't work so much like history. And I know that, that may bother us. I'm not saying it's not history that God created the world. He did. But this works more like poetry in fact, it works kind of more like the ordering of a liturgy or a worship service. You kind of have this rhythm going back and forth. And if you've ever been to a predominantly black African-American church, you know how this rhythm works. It's called call and response, right? So the preacher says something, and he says it powerfully, and there's a rhythm, and the congregation responds back, Amen. And you kind of have this back and forth of words spoken and amen responded back. There's a difference between a predominantly white congregation, Caucasian congregation, and a predominantly black congregation because in a black congregation, if no one is speaking while you're preaching, you know they're not listening. And in a white congregation, <laughs> if they are talking while you're preaching, you know they're not listening. Which makes me wonder what's going on, because you guys talk a lot while I preach. I don't know. Especially this one up here. But I want you to see the rhythms in the text. God comes as kind of the leader of this kind of rhythmic and there was day, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And he begins with, let there be light. And it's almost as if creation responds back, let it be so. Because the text says, and it was so. In fact, it's almost as if in this story, it's like a worship service where God stands up and gives the command, let there be light. He gives his word, let there be light. And the light responds back, amen. So be it, let it be so. Which is what amen means, so be it, let it be so. So God says, let there be light, and the light says, amen. And he says, let the, let the waters 
separate, let there be sky and let there be the earth. And the sky and the earth say back to God, amen. And then he commands the waters to separate and the land from the water. And the land and the water respond back, amen. And then he puts the sun, moon, and the stars. He says, let the sun, moon, and stars govern the sky. And the sun, moon, and stars say, amen. We usually don't think of those things as having the ability to say that. But in ancient Israel, the sun, moon, and stars and all of creation, they were personalities. They were gods. And God, by his very word, speaks. And all of creation responds back. Amen. It's almost if he's like, speaking a story, or he's like the director of a movie, and he's barking out commands, he's giving the script, and all of creation responds to the very script that he's given. In fact, in ancient Israel, they would have thought this is how the world works. This is an interesting way to think about the world. It's not a scientific way of thinking about the world. But every day, the sun comes up, and it's because God, by His Word, calls it. And if the Son doesn't obey God's Word, there's no life. I mean, we can only imagine if the Son never came up. There would be no life. It would be chaos. If the rain didn't come, when God calls the rain, if the rain refused to obey, There'd be no life. There'd be chaos. And so this is a picture of God giving a script and creation looking at the script and saying, Amen. And they obey. Scripture works like that script for us. Scripture works like a script or like a story to which our lives are arranged around. In fact, it's been said that we as human beings, we're storytelling animals. We love stories. Everybody loves a good story. And it's not that we just love stories, but it's that we make sense of our lives through narratives. Let me give you an example. Put the photo up on the screen. I often in one of my Bible classes on, it's, a, it's called Capstone, Christ and His World. We talk about worldview a lot in this class. And I give this exercise, I say to my students, I want you to explain to me this photo. And I want you to give me two explanations. And usually there's some typical explanations, like she said something in class and she's gotten in trouble. She puts her hand over her mouth. Or maybe her father's in the military and has gone away and surprises her one day in class. And there's always some, some guy in the class that says, yeah, she's sitting next to a boy in class and he's just farted. <laughs> and so she's trying not to choke. Amen. 
But the point is not for them to tell me. I have no idea what this photo, I just randomly picked it off the internet. I have no idea what's going on in this photo. But the point is to say, you cannot explain this photo to me without telling me some kind of story. Now, it may not be a long story. I didn't tell you a very long story. But nonetheless, you say, well, she's sitting next to this boy, and this boy farted, and so she put her hand over her mouth because she's not kind of... And so that's this kind of a story. In other words, we make sense of our lives through a story. If you see something in the world and you can't explain it, you might start saying, well... She may be sitting on the side of the road because her car broke down and she needs some help. Or maybe she's homeless. Do you see how you start creating? You start explaining the world? You make sense of what you see by narrating a story. A commentator of our culture has said this. He says, I cannot answer the question what I ought to do unless I first answer the question Of which story am I a part? And what he means by that is to ask the question, what should I do, depends on the story you think you're a part of. So my wife, Kim, who's not here, I don't think she knows I'm telling this story, so don't tell her. This is a bad bad practice already, right? Shouldn't have confessed that. She knows I tell this story all the time. My wife started reading the book, The Hunger Games. Now, my wife will pick up a novel here and there and read it, but I mean, she picked it up, and like two days, she was done with the first one. She got the second one. So I took note and thought, what is this book she's reading? And so I asked her, I said, well, what, what is, man, you're reading through these books like crazy. What's this book about? And she was like, oh. It's a story about these people that they kind of, they're these elite people and they run the world. And there's all these different districts and the elite people have all the food. And so what they do is they create these games called the Hunger Games where each district has to send two uh, teenagers to represent the district and they bring them to a place and they put weapons in the middle and they say go and everybody has to grab some weapons and these kids they fight to the death to see who and the last one standing wins all the food and I was like what kind of sick story are you reading? (laughs) She's like I know it sounds crazy but it's really good. (laughs) And I said so you mean they just they put them out in the open and They just said, get some swords and clubs and fight to the death? I haven't read the book, so I'm just going off of what she said. Swords and clubs, and they just fight to the death? She's like, yes. And I said to her, well, why don't these kids just run away? And she looked at me, and she said, you don't understand. They can't run away. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) You are really into this book. You can't first ask the question, what ought I do, until you first answer the question, to which story am I a part? I wasn't a part of that story. I didn't know the story. My reaction is to be a coward and run away. And she says, you don't understand. You can't do that in this story. 
This is perhaps why Paul says in Romans, you don't understand. You died to sin. How could you keep living in that story? Because according to the story of the kingdom of God, you died to sin. That way of living doesn't make sense in this story. In fact, Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar. I love Walter Brueggemann. He says this about stories and about Scripture. He says, stories generate story worlds so that the characters in the narratives themselves are permitted and required to respond and live according to the transactions of the stories. That's kind of wordy. But he says, if you read a story, the characters in the story, they have to act and decide and live according to the narrative. He says, in the same way, those who hear and trust the stories in God's word are invited to live in a world where the same sorts of characters are possible and the same sorts of transactions are available. You know how I know a movie is bad? It's when I'm sitting in the theater and I notice there's other people in the theater. Now I'm not talking about the annoying person that kicks you in the back of the head or the phone that goes off. I'm talking about if you're in a theater and you notice there's other people sitting around you, that's probably not a good movie. Because when it's a good movie, you're not actually in the theater, are you? Where are you? You're in the movie. Have you ever found yourself making decisions for characters in the movie? No! Don't kiss him. Don't kiss him. Don't walk through that door. I mean, this is what makes stories. You get to participate. This is why we laugh when it's funny. We cry why we're scared. We make decisions. You get to participate in the narrative. And this is what Brueggemann means. He means when we trust these stories, the same sorts of characters are available to us. And the same sorts of transactions and decisions are presented to us. We live according to that story. And Brueggemann knows and Paul knows that stories are powerful in our lives. Several years ago, there was a movie that came out. I don't know if you know this picture. Put up the next picture. Anybody recognize who this is? The Joker. Yes. Anybody know who this actor is? Heath Ledger. There we go. If you don't know, this is Heath Ledger. He famously played the Joker in the 2008 film, The Dark Knight, which is a Batman movie. Now, for those of you who don't know, that in 2008, when this movie came out, Heath Ledger died of a drug overdose, January 22, 2008. But what's interesting about this story about Heath Ledger is that in order to play the Joker, when he got the script and he read the script, he said, in order to really do justice to this script, to this character, he goes, I can't just come in and act and then leave it. He says, 
he committed himself to being the joker. He committed himself to living out the script of the joker. So typically, never been on a movie set, but typically when they say action, you play your character. When they say cut, you go back to being yourself. But this wasn't the case for Heath Ledger. He said he had to go to a very dark place to play this character. And so once they said action, he was in character. And once they said cut, he would stay in character. I mean, he'd take off all the makeup, but he would go home and he would live in the character of the Joker. By the way, he won an Academy Award for that performance. But what's interesting is that As he became the Joker, as he committed to this story and to becoming this story, when they did the final cut, after however long he was the Joker for a year, guess what was difficult for him? It was difficult for him to stop being the Joker. So much so that he couldn't get out of it. He fell into a pretty deep depression, fell into drugs. And the year before the movie came out, I think it was before the movie came out, he died of an overdose. That's the power of a narrative. (laughs) It's just a fiction narrative. And I think this is why Paul, when he's entered into the narrative of Jesus Christ, who is the crucified one, that in Galatians he can say this, he says, I've died with Christ Because he's so thoroughly placed himself in the narrative of Jesus Christ that he identifies with that character. He takes on the script and he makes it his own. And he says, I've died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the narrative of God has the power to form us we give our lives to that narrative and submit to that script. The question is not, will you submit to a story? I tell my students all the time this. The question is not, will you submit to a story? The question is, which story are you submitting to? That's the question. You are all living according to a story or multiple stories, which makes, which makes life way more complicated when you're trying to navigate multiple stories in the world, trying to interact and juggle multiple stories. But you will submit to a story, and the question is, which story? It's interesting in our text in Genesis 1, of God is the director giving the command, let there be light. And the only reason that there's life and order out of chaos is because creation obeys. One thing you could say about this story is that the life of creation is contingent on its obedience to the Word of God. It is God who calls forth the light, and the light obeys. And there's order out of chaos. There's light out of chaos, out of darkness. But when you get to the end of this narrative, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this. And then God said, Let us make humankind in our own image, in our own likeness, 
so that we may rule over the so they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground and so god created humankind in his own image and in the image of god he created them male and female he created them i want you to notice throughout these Six days, there's this rhythm where God gives the command to, the, to creation and the light responds back, amen, amen, amen. And all of creation, its life is contingent on obedience to God's command. But then when it comes to human beings, God changes the imperative and the imperative does not go this way out. He doesn't say let there be. He changes, did you notice? And he says, let us Make humankind in our own image. And there you were. In other words, creation's life is contingent on its obedience. But your life is a gift. You didn't obey anyone or anything. You just found yourself alive one day. After Genesis 1, the rest of the story, the rest of the story of Scripture is an invitation for you and I, the ones who've been gifted life. God's story in Scripture is an invitation to you and I to join in with creation and say amen back to God. Amen. Your life is a gift. And God is narrating the world. And this story says, come on. Join in creation. Join in creation. And when God speaks, join with the rest of creation and say amen back to God. And when that happens, there'll be order out of chaos. There'll be life. Would you join us today? Join with creation, saying amen back to God today. Let's stand and sing.